Joseph is now governor of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, he has travelled the land, gathered the grain, stored it in houses, so that there may be food in the time of the famine. The famine has now come. It affects not only Egypt, but all the countries around. And Egyptians and peoples from the nations, they all come to Egypt looking for bread. And Pharaoh says, go to the keeper of the storehouse. Go to Joseph. He has the bread to save your lives. Now it is important to note that although Joseph is exalted, the dreams remain unfulfilled. You will remember in the dreams that his whole family come and bow down to him in his state of exaltation. Thus far, this has not happened. And so Genesis 42 and following records the fulfillment of the dreams. And it records the fulfillment in different stages. There are different journeys of the family to Egypt before finally the dreams will be fulfilled. And Genesis 42 verses 1 to 28 records the first journey of the family to Egypt. And in this section, we see three things. One, the famine in Canaan. Two, the brothers in Egypt. And three, the Lord God in the conscience. First of all, the famine in Canaan. Chapter 42 opens with an explanation that even Canaan has a famine. Verse 5 at the end says, the famine was in the land of Canaan. This is quite extraordinary. Of course, there's famines here and there, but often famines were restricted to a certain location. So in Genesis 12, when a famine came to Canaan, Abraham went to Egypt and there was food. Or later on, when Isaac experiences a famine in the land of Canaan, he just simply goes west to the land of the Philistines and there's food there. So this is no ordinary famine. This is affecting Egypt and all the nations, including the land of Canaan. And this is a devastating famine. For it says in verse 2 that there needs to be food in Egypt. They need to go to Egypt. Why? Because it's life and death that we may live and not die. People are going to die because there's literally no food in the land of Canaan. 
And then it says in verse 5, as the brothers go down with all those that came. That is, there are caravans, groups of large uh, uh, tribes of peoples and families. They're all leaving the land of Canaan. They're all coming to Egypt in desperation. But this great famine is not just an effect of the fall. It is all under the hand of a sovereign God. In Psalm 105 verse 15 it says, God called for a famine upon the land. He break the whole staff of bread. So this is under the direct super providence of our Lord. And remember the context of Psalm 105. It's all about God's covenant. The covenant made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so God's creating this famine for the sake of his covenant. Because he not only wants to preserve the covenant house, but why would he have a famine if he wants to merely preserve the house of Jacob? Because he wants the house of Jacob to go to Egypt. He wants them to be there for 400 years. He wants them to one day cry out to the Lord and he will remember that covenant and he will deliver them and redeem them from bondage so that he can teach his people about salvation coming in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so everything here is under the power and sovereignty of God ultimately for the sake of his covenant. Jacob is still in Hebron in the land of Canaan. And he knows there's a great famine and he needs food. Verse 1 says, Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do ye look one upon another? Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Go you down thither and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. Jacob, as a, as a shepherd, starts to notice the grass that was lush and green and plentiful for his flocks starts to disappear. He travels here and there, but there's no more grass. He has relationships with people in his town and region and business associates, and everyone's saying the same thing. There's a famine in the land. And then the news spreads. There's corn, there's grain, there's food in Egypt. And with great urgency, he speaks to his sons, go now, lest we die, go down to Egypt and get corn. But while he is urgent, they are hesitant. Look at the word in verse 1. Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt. And then why do ye look one upon another? exact same word in Hebrew so Jacob is looking to Egypt and the sons are looking one to another 
they're hesitant. They don't want to go to Egypt. You can imagine the scene. It's now been 20 plus years since they tried to kill Joseph and then sell him into slavery. They lied to Jacob. Oh, he was eaten by some wild beast. But in reality, they painted his coat with blood and deceived their father. And they got away with it. And then famine comes. And one day Jacob gathers the sons. I'm looking to Egypt's sons. There's bread there. You need to go. And they're looking at each other. The memory has returned. It's vivid now. It might have been at the back of their minds. Now it's at the forefront. Egypt? That's where Joseph is. That's where we sold him to. Is he alive? Will we be found out? What would our father say? And so they're looking at each other. And they do not want to go to Egypt because of their sin. What's happening here is the opening of their conscience. And this is superintended by the Lord God and his providence. The notification of going to Egypt sparks to the very front of their conscience what we did to our brother. This is how God often begins a work in a sinner. Where they sin and they live and they don't really bother because they've dulled their conscience. But either in providence or in the word of God, their particular sins are made known to them. And now the conscience is alive. There's no repentance here, don't get me wrong. But the first work is here. A bringing to the mind the consciousness of sin in their very conscience. But they have no choice really. Jacob is the patriarch, Jacob's the father. And with his authority he says, go to Egypt. But not all of you are going. Verse 4. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, lest peradventure mischief befall him. Benjamin's not going. Benjamin is Jacob's son to his true love, Rachel. And remember, he and Rachel only had two sons, Benjamin and Joseph. And so Benjamin is Joseph's full brother. And Jacob does not want Benjamin to go lest mischief befall him. Uh, this means like violent harm. The particular word is used 
uh, by Jacob three times in Genesis of Benjamin, but it's also used once in Exodus 21. If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow. So violent harm that comes to death. And so Jacob is saying, I do not want Benjamin to go because if he goes with you, what happens if violent harm comes to him and he dies? Is this a sneaky suspicion about Joseph? Maybe. He knows his sons. Does he maybe have suspicions about their character? Some think so. I'm not so sure myself. But this is true. When I sent Joseph to go with all you, what happened to him? He died because he was slain by an animal. I do not want the same thing to happen to Benjamin. Do we see what's happened in the family household again? Favoritism. We said in our first sermon on this series how the sins of the father can be passed on to the sins of the son. Where Isaac had favoritism, uh, Rebecca had favoritism, that caused all kinds of problems in the household with Esau and Jacob. And then it's repeated generation to generation. And you think Joseph would be the death of the favoritism, but no, it's alive and well still. And Benjamin, again, a repeated warning about human nature. We can easily, subconsciously even, the sins of our father, we have those sins, our sons. Remind us to us again, how do we live and act and behave and train and parent if the sins, let us mortify them. But he does not want Benjamin to go down, but he sends his ten sons. Secondly now, the brothers in Egypt. The brothers, the ten brothers, they go down with the caravan from Canaan to Egypt. They would have gone there asking for bread, for grain, and they would have been shown the way, go to the governor. Go to the governor of Egypt. He's in charge. He's the one who gives out the corn. And in verse 6, they arrive. And it says, Joseph was the governor over the land. And he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. Here's the Lord God's will. What was the first dream? That the brothers would one day bow down to Joseph in exaltation. And here is the fulfillment. But imagine Joseph's experience. He gets up in the morning and he does everything he does every day. He goes to the storehouses. He's checking the records. People from Egypt, people from the countries are coming to him. <coughs> and he gives them corn. He sells it to them. And so maybe standing at a table and a group from Ethiopia come. He sells it. A group comes from Canaan. He sells it, and then what do you know? 
His ten brothers are before his eyes. But they don't recognize him because he disguises himself. In verse 7 it says, And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly to them. There's a play in words here with the word knew. That word strange is the exact same word. Literally, it's he knew them, and he made himself unknown to them. Possibly, he, he's already, of course, wearing his royal regalia, and maybe he disguised himself with some sort of cloth across the face. But either way, he made sure he wore particular things so that they would not recognize him. In verse 23, it says that he spake through an interpreter, which means he continued to speak in the Egyptian tongue and the interpreter would translate into the Hebrew tongue. And it also says here, he spoke roughly with them. That means hard. Whether it was the tone or the content, there's no great welcome. There's no gentleness here. He spoke hard to them. Now why is Joseph doing this? Some say because he wants revenge. I understand that rationale. It makes sense according to human nature. But is that really what's going on here? Look at the whole context. Joseph has a dream. And in verse 9, it doesn't say he remembered what his brothers did. He remembered the pit. He remembered the selling into slavery. It doesn't say that, does it? It says in verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed. God's revelation, God's communication, God's will. What were those dreams? Not just his brothers, but all his brothers, including Benjamin, and his parents, including his father, Jacob would come. Jacob's not here. Benjamin's not here. What is his concern here? Where's your father? Where's Benjamin? And why would Joseph ask so many questions of them? Because he has the right to be wary of them. They're murderous. They're hateful. How have they treated Jacob? What about the youngest son, Benjamin? How have they been treating him? And does he not show acts of kindness to them in here, as we'll see later? Giving them their money back, filling their sacks with grain. Put this all together. There's a divine purpose happening here. Joseph has a noble reason for doing this. He wants to know the truth 
about his father in Benjamin from an untruthful, lying, deceitful, murderous family of brothers. He wants the truth. He also, no doubt, wants to see repentance. And there must be repentance before there can be reconciliation. Joseph has noble reasons and divine reasons for what he is doing. John Calvin, Joseph was impelled neither by anger nor a thirst of vengeance, but that he was induced by two just causes to act as he did. For he both desired to regain his brother Benjamin and wished to ascertain as if by putting them to the torture what was in their mind, whether they repented or not. And in short, what had been their course of life since he had seen them last. So Joseph's not doing this out of vengeance here. Just read the context, read the language. He's doing it. To ascertain the truth and to see if there is repentance. This teaches us three lessons. The first lesson is, this is what the greater Joseph does in repentance. Just as Joseph is exalted as a prince in Egypt and desires repentance of his brethren, So does our Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 5 verse 31. Jesus hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a saviour for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And Christ sometimes achieves repentance by making a sinner desire him and he hides himself. Remember the woman of Canaan in Matthew 15. She has a demon-possessed daughter. And she's heard that Jesus is the Messiah who is full of compassion and who delivers people from such bondage. So she goes from her Gentile land all the way to the borders of Tyre and Sidon where Christ is. And she says, Lord, be merciful Deliver my daughter. And what does it say in Matthew 15? He answered her not a word. He answered her not a word. And then she comes to him and what does he say? I've only come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then he leaves her and goes into a house. Then she follows him. And then she says, woman, it's not right to give bread to the dogs. Hiding and hiding, hard words after hard words. Why is he doing this? True faith will cleave to Christ and will not let go because of the great need of salvation. And she never lets go. And what does she say? Those beautiful words. That those crumbs that fall from the master's table are sufficient. O woman, great is thy faith. And so with unconverted people, there are times, notice I said times, not always. 
that he and his wisdom will have a stirring of the heart of the sinner to seek him and he hides himself because he's drawn them to cleave to him for full salvation. Maybe that's someone in this house. Maybe someone has become very aware of their sins and they have sought Jesus and found no comfort and no forgiveness. Keep seeking him. He's testing your faith. He promises if you come to me, I will no wise cast out. He will keep his promise. But secondly, God often deals in this way with his own people. So that when we sin, we will truly repent. There's so many scriptures to show this. Hosea 5.15 I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offence and seek my face. So here Israel, the land of Israel... They're sinning against God and they're not repenting. So God says, I'm going away from you. My presence, my blessing, my power, I'm departing from you. And this is for a purpose so that you would repent and seek my face. Then I'll forgive you and then I'll return. Or Psalm 60 verse 3. This is the psalmist speaking to God. Thou hast showed thy people hard things. Thou hast made us to drink the wine of astonishment. And so when God's people have sinned, he says hard things. He does hard things to drink the wine of astonishment. He is very hard to you to show you how sinful you have been. And again, you read the psalmist. Why? It's so we would know the greatness of our sin and return. And so for the born again true believer, this is at times the pattern of God. Because we fall into sin, we do not repent, and we think just a little confession will do it. God says, no, do you truly know the sinfulness of your sin? Because you'll confess it on a Monday and you're back at it on a Tuesday. And there was not true repentance. And so for grace, for goodness, I am going to go away for a time and I'm going to speak and do hard things for a time so that you would truly feel the sinfulness of your sin. And then there will be genuine, real, life-changing repentance. Is that someone in this church? where there is a particular sin in your life and you're not truly repenting, you feel a bit sorry, but there's no real repentance and God is hiding his face and he is saying and doing hard things. He's speaking to you through Joseph here and he's saying you have to be truly repentant of your sin and if you're truly repentant, then I will return in my mercy and forgiveness and blessing. But there's a third lesson also. 
true reconciliation can only happen when there's sincere repentance. If these brothers do not sincerely repent, and let's just say Joseph reveals himself, well, it's only a matter of time before Jacob's favourite son is on the end of their wrath. And what sort of relationship is it when the person who's done you severely wrong are not truly sorry for doing you wrong? Luke chapter 17, our Lord Jesus Christ says, offences will come. And then he says, take heed to yourselves if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if you repent, forgive him. Notice the conditionality, if, repent. So, in the church, outside of the church, there are people who are going to do you severely wrong. They're going to offend you. And yes, you should always, always, always have a ready, willing, open heart for forgiveness. But that can't be had unless the other party repent. And you go to them, you tell them of their sin, you tell them of their offence, and by the grace of God, we pray their sincere repentance. But if they don't repent, there can't be real reconciliation. You can say, I am willing to forgive you, I am withholding nothing from you, but you must repent of your sin. And there's a distinction between lesser offences and greater offences. Lesser offences, you can just fully forgive them on the spot, full reconciliation. Okay? A few harsh words between a brother and a brother, a sister or sister, right? But then there's greater offences where there's an initial declaration of forgiveness, but not reconciliation. Because there needs to be fruits meet for repentance before there's full reconciliation. And so imagine someone's a thief and they're in my home and they're stealing quite a lot. And I go to them and I confront them and they admit it. I don't go, would you like to look after my house for a week? That's foolish. Christians are never called to be naive and foolish. You say, if this is real, then I fully forgive you. And I'm going to do what I can with you. But because my trust is broken, the trust needs to be mended. Now, this is not a finger pointing. Now, you better live up to my... No, no, this is trust needs to be built. And when you see the fruit of true repentance... Then you'll be like Ephesians chapter 4. That thief is converted. Man, I trust him with my house. So for reconciliation, there must be repentance. And now Joseph, he's going to have a plan here just to get the answers of truth and to see if there is repentance from his brethren. The first plan comes in verses 9 to 13 and he accuses them of being spies. This is a charge because they're from a foreign land. It's a serious charge and the purpose is to ascertain the truth. And what's their answer? Their first answer is this. We're not spies. We're from the land of Canaan. We're true men. 
True men, it says. That word true means honest and honourable men. Really? Now they think they're just speaking to an Egyptian who doesn't know them. We are true and honourable men. Joseph knows the truth. They're anything but true, honourable men. So he repeats the accusation. No, 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 no. You're spies. And now the answer comes out more. No, we are 12 sons of one father. We are 10 here. The other son, Benjamin, is with his father in Canaan. And we have another brother who is not. There's a half truth there. One who is not means they're not in this world anymore. Either from death, which is the most use of it in scripture. And of course, Enoch, he was not found because he was not. Well, was the other brother really simply not? That's not true. They tried to kill him, changed their minds, and then sold him into slavery in Egypt. Your spies, they're still not even telling the truth. Then secondly, he says in verses 9, sorry, verse um, 15 and 16, I'm going to prove you, I'm going to test you. One of you is going to go back and get Benjamin to see if this is all a true story. And the rest of you are going in prison. So he puts them in prison for three days. Silence. Darkness. It's time to think. And then on the third day, he comes to them and he says, Do this and live, for I fear God. They would have been stunned by that. We're in Egypt and there's someone who fears the God, their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the Hebrew God. They'd have been startled by that. And then Joseph appears in a more soft manner and says, I'll keep one brother and the rest of you go back, get uh, Benjamin and return to prove what you're saying is true. Now, what effect did this plan have on the brothers? Well, you can see it in verses 21 and 22. And they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore, is this distress come upon us? They're looking to each other, they're speaking. They don't think the Egyptian governor can understand them. We're guilty. We are guilty. Guilty here means both the guilt of breaking the law and the liability for punishment. We did wrong because 20 years ago, we put our brother in a pit. He cried out in anguish. He cried out in the anguish of his soul and we did not listen to him. This distress has come upon us. And again... That word anguish and that word distress is the exact same word. These things really should be translated consistently. 
as Joseph experienced anguish at our hands, therefore we are experiencing anguish because of what we are doing. Now there's real conviction. Now they feel it not only in the memory of the mind, but in the heart. They're pricked, they're stabbed, they're thrusted through. They feel the pain and the sorrow and the anguish. And they're reflecting in providence and saying, what we did to Joseph is happening to us. Joseph came to us and shared an evil report. We're being accused of evil reporting as spies. We put him in a pit. We were just imprisoned in the pit for three days. We went to our father without one of the brothers and we said that he is lost. Simeon is now bound. We have to go back to our father and say, one of your sons is lost in Egypt. All these things that we are experiencing is because of our sin 20 years ago. But note, God's not mentioned here. Now, Joseph's fear of God is producing this conviction within their conscience, but it's not a conviction of conscience that says, against thee, O Lord, I have sinned. It's a next step, but it's not repentance. Thirdly, the Lord God in the conscience. How does Joseph respond to hearing his brothers confess their guilt before him? In verse 24, it says, He turned himself about from them and wept. He can't stand there like some solemn, stoic Egyptian governor. He's hearing it. We've sinned. We're guilty. Look what we did 20 years ago. This is coming upon us because of what we did. We have done wrong. And he can't just stand there anymore. He must turn away and weep. He cares for his brethren still. He is full of compassion even for those who have done him wrong. Is that not like our Lord Jesus Christ? How often we have sinned against him. How great is our guilt against him. And yet he looks at us and he says, I am moved with compassion for my people. And then in verse uh, 25 and 6, he gets the sacks of his brothers. He fills it to the brim with grain. He says, I don't want their money. Take all the money back and he puts it back in as a gift. And he does this as a gift. Uh, Chapter 43 verse 23. 
uh, reveals Joseph why he did this. 43.23 says, And he said, Peace be to you, fear not, your God and the God of your father have given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. This is a gift of God. As God blessed me, I'm blessing you. And out of kindness of my heart, though you've done me wrong, I'm filling your sacks and I don't need your money. Take it all back. Joseph has a good practice here of doing good to those who do evil towards us. Romans 12, 17. Recompense no man evil for evil. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. That's how we respond to those who do us wrong. We can still love them and do good for them and pray for them and fill their sacks. It's a good practical lesson for me and for you. But the brothers, they go back to the land of Canaan. They're not aware of this money in their sack. They stop off at an inn for a break. And one of the brothers opens one of the sacks, maybe to get some food. They're hungry. And what do you know? Their money's there. And they're terrified. Verse 27. And one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the inn. And he espied his money, for behold, it was in his sack's mouth. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and it is in my sack. And their heart failed them. Oh no, we did not pay for that grain. He thinks we're spies, now he thinks we're thieves. How are we going to get Simeon back? What are we going to say to our father? This has all gone terribly wrong. We could either be put to death or we could be put into slavery ourselves for this crime. The heart feels them means their spirit left to them. Their spirit departed from them. For them, it's the worst possible thing that could have happened to them. But now, God is in their thoughts. 28. And they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? God's now in their mind. God is in their conscience. Now they're thinking in a God-centred manner. Everything that's happening to us is under God's judgment against us. He's doing it. And this consciousness of God will lead them to repentance and you will see the change in them in the corresponding chapters and it is a wonderful thing to see any sinner not only feeling bad for wrongdoing not simply admitting that they do the wrong but they have a sense of God upon their conscience that God judges them God condemns them for their sin God holds them accountable and God We will answer to him. 
And everyone who has a, such a sense of God and a, such a sense of sin, they must go to that God. God wounds so that he may heal. As uh, Pastor Ted Donnelly often used the illustration, you think of a knife. Now think of a knife in the hand of a surgeon. He's going to cut. There's going to be pain. He's going to wound. Now for what purpose? To heal. And so God takes providence and his word, thrusts it into the conscience of a sinner. He puts his holy nature, his sovereign nature, his just nature upon their conscience. He wounds them so that he may heal. And whether we're unconverted and refusing to go to God, or whether we're converted and we're in our sin and we're still refusing to go to God, if we keep our conviction within, it's only going to get worse. Psalm 32, which we sung earlier, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. I had sinned, I had grieved. Providence and the word made me aware and I was so aware that thy hand, O God, was against me. But what does it say in the next verse? I acknowledge my sin unto thee and mine iniquity have I not hit. I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. That's beautiful. That God is coming to you and showing you your sin and his hands upon you. Go to God in Christ Jesus. There is mercy in the greater Joseph. There is the full forgiveness of your sins. There is the cleansing of your conscience. There's the wiping away of the guilt. If we go to the Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 86, Thou Lord art good, ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy unto all them that call thee. Psalm 130, let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him plenteous redemption. Christ moved with compassion. He will forgive all who come to him by faith. So whether you are an unbeliever right now, and you're convicted by your sin and awareness of God's holiness, go to God in the name of Jesus Christ and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. In the name of Jesus, forgive me, and he will forgive. And to us who are Christians, who are trying to retain a sin, or we feel sorry for certain sins, but we're not truly repenting. And God's hand is upon you. He's strange to you. He's speaking roughly to you. And you are so aware of it. Turn to me and I will turn to you. I am ready and willing to show you mercy. Truly repent. Truly come to me. Truly confess. And I will shower you with mercy. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, 
we are thankful as the brothers go down into Egypt, the Lord went down into their conscience. And we pray that every single one of us, the psalmist would not be true of us. God is not in all their thoughts. We pray, O Lord, this is not so, but that God would be in all our thoughts. And we would all know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And we would not simply feel sorry for sin, feel bad for sin, and even admit when we sin. But with evangelical repentance, we would grieve our sin and turn to thee for full forgiveness and the mercy of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let us conclude by praising God in Psalm 60. Psalm 60, verses 1 to 5. The tune is contemplation, tune number 44. The psalm begins with an acknowledgement that God is hiding himself. O Lord, thou hast rejected us. Thou justly has displeased been, and it's an answer to return. Verse 3, unto thy people thou hard things hast showed, and on them sent. But look at verse 4, and yet a banner thou hast given to them who thee do fear, that it by them because of truth displayed may appear, that thy beloved people may be delivered. Save with the power of thy right hand, and hear me when I call. Standing if we're able, let us praise God. Psalm 60, 1 to 5. <laughs>